Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. During the past two years, the world has seen the eruption of two major conflicts in two different regions. In Europe, Russia has launched a war of aggression against Ukraine in an attempt to reclaim a sphere of influence. While in the Middle East, Iran's longstanding policy of enabling proxies, including Hamas, has resulted in a major war in Gaza and widespread violence throughout the region. In the meantime, tensions continue to simmer in East Asia, where China's ambitions of primacy have stoked fears of a potential future conflict over Taiwan. While these three regional competitions may seem separate, they are in reality becoming increasingly interconnected as ties among Eurasia's revisionist powers become stronger, a dynamic similar to that observed in the prelude to World War II. That, at least, is the argument that today's guest makes in his recent foreign affairs piece titled The Next Global War, How Today's Regional Conflicts Resemble the Ones That Produced World War II. So to discuss that piece and today's broader geopolitical environment, we're really pleased to have Hal Brands with us on the podcast today. Welcome, Hal. Thank you for having me. Um, quick Background. Hal Brands is the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of, of Advanced International Studies and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's co-author of The Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China. So Hal, I did a little summary of the argument you make in the foreign affairs piece, but would love to hear from you kind of in your own words, um, what the major argument is that you're making in that piece. And then we'll obviously talk about all of the parallels to what's happening today. Sure. Well, um, it's a pleasure to be here. and I've, I've listened to the podcast for a while, so it's it's an honor to, to be your guest. And I'll just, just kind of give you the capsule view of the piece. The core of the argument is that um, if Americans don't realize how close to a state of globalized conflict they are, that's because they misremember how global conflicts occurred in the past. And so when we think about the last global conflict, the last global hot war, World War II, we remember it as what it eventually became, which is a, a truly globalized st struggle between two rival alliances fighting each other on a worldwide battlefield. But that, of course, is not how the war began. It began as three separate regional conflicts, basically Germany's drive for preeminence in Europe and beyond, um, the Italian gambit in the Mediterranean basin in Africa, and then Japanese aggression uh, in what we would now call the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific. And those conflicts intensified over the course of the 1930s and then gradually got wrapped together in ever tighter and tighter ways. And when you think about it that way, the parallels to the present become increasingly striking. And so you are, if you think about the three key theaters of Eurasia, which has been sort of where the main event in international politics plays out during the modern era, well, two of them are already seeing hot wars. So obviously there's the war in, in Ukraine. There's the war uh, in the Middle East, which is really a conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas, and then all of the violent spillover it has produced from the Levant to the, to the Red Sea and beyond. And in the third region, uh, in East Asia, the US and China are not at war, but they're not really at peace either. If you think about the shifting military balance, if you think about rising tensions over Taiwan and other issues in that region. And at the same time, the ties between these various theaters are becoming more pronounced. And, and so a subject, certainly, Andrea, that you've written a great deal about, is the way that the Russia-China relationship has blossomed, continues to blossom uh, as the Ukraine war goes on in ways uh, that make China increasingly central to the Russian war effort, even though it's not providing lethal assistance to Russia, it's providing the economic wherewithal to keep fighting. Uh, certainly, we're seeing you know, Iran become more of a two-way military partner to Russia in ways that are tying the conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East more closely together. And so the big danger from my perspective is that as bad as the current situation is, if you were to somehow get a breakdown of this very tenuous piece in the Western Pacific, you'd have a situation where all three key theaters of Eurasia are in flames at the same time, and all of those fires are fueling each other in, in devastating ways. That might not lead to sort of a replay of World War II. I don't think it's, it's quite that bad, but it would certainly be a graver situation than the world has confronted at any time since 1945. 
Yeah, we can talk about the kind of the simultaneity risk and the opportunistic aggression piece. But I think one thing that's so notable since Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been the significant uptick in interstate wars and conflicts. And so you just named off a bunch of what's happening. Obviously, you have the Hamas attack, you have the Houthis and all of their attacks in the Red Sea. You had Iran firing missiles into Pakistan and Iraq. In Eurasia, you had the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. You have Venezuela threatening to take Guyana by force. And it just is so remarkable to me because we're coming off what we had all called, you know, this long piece. And we all had talked about the fact that interstate conflict was, you know, just going to be relished to a bygone era. And we were all thinking about civil wars and intrastate conflict. What has changed? Like, why, why are we seeing this uptick in interstate war, do you think? Well, I, I think part of it is that the balance of power has shifted. And so for a long, long time, it was, you know, after the Cold War, it was just not profitable to launch significant military aggression in an important region of the world because you were likely to get smacked down by the United States. And the U.S., along with its coalition of allies, was just so overwhelmingly dominant that there was there was no question who was going to win that kind of fight. As the balance of power shifts in key regions, that constraint becomes a little bit less binding. So I think that's that's thing one. Thing two, to some degree, it's a broken windows world. And so the concept of broken windows policing has gone out of fashion a little bit, but, but there's something to it, which is that if you are a bad actor and you see bad actions happening and going unpunished, well, of course, you're more likely to engage in bad behavior of your own because you don't fear the consequences of it. As, as much. And so a lot of these things kind of feed on each other. Once you see somebody using coercion or force to change the status quo in an important region, well, you know, why shouldn't Venezuela try it, you know, vis-a-vis Guyana? And then the third one, it does go to this issue of, of simultaneity that you mentioned, or this, this issue of overstretch would be the other way of, of putting it, which is that the United States increasingly finds itself in a position where it just has far more problems than it does resources or attention to deal with them. And countries around the world know that, right? So they, they, you know, Vladimir Putin knew in early 2022 that the U.S. was desperate to focus on the China problem. And he calculated incorrectly, as it turned out, that that would lead the U.S. to be more acquiescent uh, if he were to use force against Ukraine. But the broader point still remains, which is that if you are a bad actor, the fact that the U.S. is preoccupied in a bunch of different places and is struggling to handle these crises, that is enabling, that's emboldening from your perspective, because it further decreases the chances that you're going to get hit with a devastating response. Uh, I agree completely with that. And, and Hal, welcome to the to the program. This is just one of my favorite topics. And Andre, I'm so happy that you've allowed us to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. But um, you know, um, you laid out, and Andrea did as well. The um, you know some of the some of the parallels from the 1930s, uh, and how things have changed, or not necessarily today, uh, in those areas, or at least the idea that you're having these these uh, regional wars. How has the United States changed? In a way, when you look at the United States of the 1930s, uh, the people, the politics, uh, leadership in Washington. Um, decision making in Washington, uh, uh, you know, how has how are we different today uh, than we were back then? Um, there's a lot more on our shoulders, of course. You were just mentioning how, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. and its power and the allies deterred a lot of things from happening because they because the aggressor knew that they might get whacked. Uh, from from folks, the U.S. was well. I don't want to answer. The U.S. was was different back in the '30s. Tell us, tell us how things are different now, and is that good or not so good? There are differences, I think, that cut in both directions, and then there are some things where the differences aren't as pronounced as we might like to think. And so the um, we start from a better position in the sense that there's just a much higher level of U.S. global engagement now than there was in the 1930s. And so one, one of the problems, one of the reasons why the balance of power broke so catastrophically in Europe, for instance, during the 1930s, was that the U.S. was absent from the European balance of power and everybody knew it. And that made it harder to rally resistance to Hitler, say, you know, around the 1938 Munich crisis or, or some right. other episode like that. 
uh, the U.S. is not absent from managing the balance of power in, in East Asia and Europe, as well as the Middle East right now. And it makes a huge difference. So imagine the difference between the Western response to Ukraine in a world where NATO does exist and the U.S. backstop does exist versus a world in which that backstop does not exist. I would wager you would have gotten a fundamentally different European reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine if the Europeans had not been able to fall back on the confidence that, that NATO and the U.S. security guarantee provides. And so that, that alliance structure provides a level of global stability and a level of resilience that was absent in earlier periods. So that, that's really, really good. And that would be thing one. Thing two, though, is that um, the U.S. has also changed in some ways to make the situation more challenging. And so, you know, we all know the story of, of World War II, where the U.S. starts slow and then basically powers the allies to victory through this world-beating mobilization of economic, industrial, and military might. And that was possible because at the time, U.S. economic leadership was rooted in manufacturing leadership. And you were coming out of the Great Depression, so you had huge amounts of spare capacity in U.S. manufacturing, and all you needed was money. And, and so if you got money, you could go from one shift to three at you know, the General Motors plant that was now going to produce bombers, or what, whatever the case may be. You, you could almost flip a switch. I'm exaggerating. It took two or three years, but there was uh, a lot of spare capacity that you could tap into. That is no longer the case. The you know President Biden referenced the arsenal of democracy in the speech they gave on uh, Israel and Ukraine back in October. The arsenal of democracy just does not exist in the way that it did in the 1940s. The the U.S. defense industrial base is in a pretty bad state as a result of about three decades of persistent disinvestment in it. Um, the Allied defense industrial bases are, for the most part, in a much much worse shape as the Europeans are discovering today as they start thinking about how potentially to sustain Ukraine without the United States, which is maybe something that we can we can talk about. And so if the U.S. finds itself in, uh, forget about a global conflict situation, a uh, situation of facing one big conflict against Russia or China, it's going to find it extremely difficult to generate the mobilization that would allow it to uh, replace used munitions, replace lost materiel. It's just a, a far different situation. And then the way in which I think maybe we're not as different as we uh, might like to think is that, you know, we're hearing some some arguments these days that are not that dissimilar to the sort of arguments we heard against U.S. global engagement in the 1930s. I mean, Donald Trump ran for president, won the presidency in, in 2016 on the platform of America first, which is ripped directly from the argument of the anti-interventionists in 1940 and, and 1941. Um, Trump, but not just Trump. Uh, there are a bunch of people who have called into question the value of U.S. alliances and, and U.S. forward presence. Uh, and that sort of uh, restraint argument seems stronger to me than at any time since 1945 or perhaps even the period running up to, to World War II. And I think it's just emblematic of the way that we sometimes, you know, we have become so accustomed to living in a world that is structured by American power that we have found it hard to understand what the world would look like if it were no longer structured by American power. And that's a lesson we learned from World War II that I think we're in danger of forgetting today. Have we have we reached that state of uh, that you know you were just describing? Um, you know we've uh, uh, we've we find ourselves, as you were saying, sounding more like uh, Charles Lindbergh and the America Firsters and this type of thing. How was it that we went from uh, this internationalist? Uh, perspective post World War II, um, this idea that uh, if we're if we go back to being isolationist again, although we've always had that strain, but if we go back and have that be the dominant strain, that it's going to rebound poorly on the United States. That we need to be internationalists. We need to, uh, um, you know, grit our teeth and don that that uh, mantle of being the policeman in a lot of ways. That actually it's in our in our best uh, best interest to do that. What happened and when did it happen? Did that very strong point of view become become di diluted such that you're hearing now from Donald Trump that uh, we should, you know, uh, the, you know, he's been undercutting the alliance quite a bit, both as president and then now as uh, as the potential Republican uh, contender uh, talking about NATO and, and throwing allies to the wolves if they're not paying into NATO as if it's a country club. How did, how did this happen and when? I think part of it 
has to do with the hangover from the wars of the early 2000s, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And, and so for a significant portion of the American electorate, the most visible initiatives in U.S. foreign policy over the past generation have not been resounding successes. They, they've been cases where the costs are very, very visible and in some cases severe. And so that had a chilling effect on kind of American internationalism writ large, even though you can be in favor of U.S. alliances and U.S. efforts to stabilize key regions without being in favor of, you know, invading Iraq again or, or something like that. But there's, there's two bigger issues, I, I think, at play, two more timeless issues. The first is that the costs of U.S. global engagement are always more visible than the benefits because the benefits come mostly in the form of bad things that don't happen. And so how right. can you prove that the bad thing didn't happen because of U.S. leadership? I, I think it's been a big benefit that we haven't had a global depression or a global war since 1945. And I would attribute that heavily to, to the role that the U.S. has played in the world. But it's hard to prove conclusively, let alone in sort of the cut and thrust of American political debate. And so that that is why there's sort of this persistent temptation to say, oh, my gosh, everything's going terrible in American foreign policy. Look at all the costs we're paying and so on and so forth, because the benefits are harder to tally up. Now, for generations, Jim, as you pointed out, Americans could be swayed, be persuaded that the benefits were worth seeking. But I think it's mostly because they remembered kind of the, the 1940s and the 1930s era. And they remembered how bad things could get when the international order fell apart and when you didn't have a relatively benign global hegemon providing global public goods, providing stability in key regions and, and so on and so forth. But look, that, that was 80 years ago uh, at this point, right? It's been 35 years since the Cold War ended. And so there's sort of this natural forgetting process that's happening where we have forgotten what the world is really like when you don't have the United States or another liberal superpower setting and enforcing the rules. We will be reminded of that, unfortunately, you know, eventually, but that, that may come you know, after the world has gotten a bit more nasty than it is today. Right. A related but slightly tangential question, you were talking about interlinkages between conflicts and how they kind of get wound up in one another. And then you mentioned some of the Kind of forever wars and involvement in the Middle East. Um, one argument that people have made is that America's withdrawal from Afghanistan um, factored into Putin's calculus to invade Ukraine. Um, and I wonder if you see any connections between those two things. I guess I would say that I I would find it plausible that it mattered in Putin's calculus, but probably only at the margin. I mean, it, it, it seems if you if you think about kind of the longer trajectory of U.S., Russia, Ukraine relations, I think Putin could get to where he needed to be to do this, even if Afghanistan had not happened. And so I, I'm fairly persuaded by the argument that, you know, the reason Putin goes whole hog in invading Ukraine in 2022 is because he had run out of other options for bringing about a suitably um, subordinate Ukraine from his perspective. And he believed he had a window of opportunity to do it as well as, as a result of a variety of factors, you know, everything from political transitions in, in Europe to a U.S. that looked like it really wanted to focus on the Indo-Pacific and, and so on and so forth. But if you if someone were to make the argument that, look, even within this context, the fact that the U.S. had decided to withdraw from Afghanistan after 20 years and in early 2021, that didn't exactly leave Putin wowed by American resolve and competence and commitment. I would say, yeah, it's it's plausible that that affects his calculations at the margin. And it's maybe one, one more of the factors that led him to underestimate the response he would eventually get. Okay, continuing down the path of interconnections. Another argument you hear quite a lot is like what the United States and Europe do in Ukraine in terms of continuing support and enabling a Ukrainian victory there has consequences for other conflicts, most notably uh, Xi's calculus on Taiwan. Do you do you see strong connections between what happens in Ukraine to the Indo-Pacific? I do um, in, in a bunch of different respects. And, and so the, the most important one or the first one, at least, is the sort of the psychological issue that you mentioned. Uh, and I, I think it is totally 
reasonable to suggest that whether aggression succeeds or fails in one place influences calculations about whether it's worth trying in, in another place. And, and again, uh, we can go back to the history of the 1930s and early 1940s and, and looking at this, we, we know now that the fact that Japan was successful in taking Manchuria and discrediting the League of Nations played into you know, Italy's calculations regarding Ethiopia in 1935. The fact that the League of Nations again fell flat on its face in that crisis helps encourage Hitler to remilitarize the Rhineland the next year and, and, and so on and so forth, right? And so there is this psychological interconnectedness of theaters, which is totally normal and totally natural. And it would be shocking if it didn't play out that way, because how else are humans supposed to shape their expectations about what will happen in case B, except by looking what happens in, in case A? Now, the, the counter argument to this is that, um, yes, but there is a capabilities trade-off between Ukraine and, and Taiwan. And in a short-term sense, uh, that is true to, to some degree, leaving aside the fact that some of the capabilities that we are providing the Ukrainians with would not be as relevant in a Taiwan context or vice versa, right? We a lot more kind of anti-ship missiles in a, in a Taiwan context than we need in a, in a Ukraine context. But if you look kind of historically at the way that the United States does things, we're not great at saying, um, thing A is happening in this theater right now. Let's not do anything about it to husband our capabilities and keep our powder dry for thing B. And then we'll spring into action when thing B happens. The, the way the U.S. usually responds is we say, oh, my God, this horrible thing has happened. Global security is at stake. Let's invest more to try to strengthen our capabilities in multiple theaters. This, this is what happened before uh, World War II, where the United States makes a huge strategic decision uh, in 1939, 1940 to start developing basically the military capabilities of a superpower as the balance of power in Europe in particular uh, erodes. But that strengthened the United States and the Pacific eventually as well. It's the thing that happens in the early Cold War. So when um, South Korea gets invaded by North Korea in 1950, the U.S. doesn't simply respond by um, helping South Korea defend itself. It doesn't simply respond by showing up the balance of power in Asia. It responds by showing up the balance of power everywhere, right? This is when NATO becomes a really real military alliance. This is when the U.S. puts additional troops into Europe uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so I think that that is kind of the proper answer to a situation where you have theaters that are interconnected, but there are trade-offs. You use the urgency provided by a crisis in one to, to make the investments and, and to generate the speed and decisive action that's needed to strengthen yourself in multiple theaters at once. I think that's really the only way we'll get in front of these challenges. Well, that's really, really interesting. And, and just to uh, throw something in, you know, um, the, uh, the, the uh, defense strategy um, that we uh, that was published uh, a year or two ago talked about China as the pacing threat and uh, Russia was the acute threat, you know, where DOD is trying to, uh, you know, they're they're fighting inside inside the building over which theater should be given priority. And uh, I know a lot of the people who were doing the fighting and a lot of them did the same thing back during the Obama days, and it's just a mess. Anyway, they came up with that cute little, you know, little wordplay there. Um, but you were talking about the, uh, you know, trying to deal with two theaters uh, and, um, and, and how we normally, how we respond when, it, when we've got uh, these threats uh, to the world order, if you will, the international uh, uh, rules uh, that we've set up. And I'm wondering what you thought about that wordplay with China being uh, the pacing threat and Russia being the acute threat. And then how that has played out, that strategy has played out, not just in terms of what we've done uh, with China and with Ukraine, where all of a sudden, like you were pointing out earlier, one helps to progress, uh, you know, progress in the other theater with assistance and this type of thing, building up the U.S. forces. But we found ourselves pulling and tugging between the acute and the pacing. And, and then you have Gaza and all of the Iranian-supported militia attacks on top of that. And so you look back from where we are today and you look back on that strategy, that cute little wordplay. It sounded so nice and neat, you know, pacing, acute. Uh, and now you look back on that and go, you know, those people. <laughs> I mean, how, did, how does that how does it strike you? What how they tried to deal with that 
with that strategy and how it evolved and what it looks like today. Yeah, so I guess the, the first thing I would say is that it always, as you as you know very well, Jim, having spent a career in DOD, D, DOD does not get to shape the political context in which it works, right? And, and so the options that are available when it comes time to draft the NDS or do anything like that are conditioned by the budgetary constraints, they're conditioned by the larger political climate. And, and so to some extent, DOD simply has to do the best that it can within that context. Now, what it sometimes leads to is problematic assumptions about how the world works and, and the severity of the threats that the United States faces. And so, right. you know, if you just look at the timing of this NDS, clearly the thing was drafted before the Russians invaded Ukraine and then was updated after the Russians invaded Ukraine. But the initial instinct of DOD was to say, actually, the invasion of Ukraine doesn't change very much, right? It doesn't change very much because um, Russian combat power is getting chewed up in Ukraine. Russia is going to be defeated in Ukraine. Russia will not be able to pose a meaningful threat to the eastern front of NATO for some time to come as a result of this. So, yeah, it's an acute threat right now, but this is not sort of the now and forever threat in the way that that China is. That was um, an assumption, I think, that, that looked a lot more plausible in October 2022 or whatever month it was when the NDS finally was released in public at least than it does today, because what we've seen is that one, Russia may not be headed for strategic defeat in Ukraine. It may be headed for a very ugly and very costly victory. And two, Russia is just a much more economically mobilized actor today than it was in, in 2022 or even 2023. And if you look at the way that Russia is churning out artillery ammunition, if you look at the way that Putin has been able to generate additional manpower, um, that probably indicates that our early guesses about how long it would take Russia to regenerate military power were too conservative, right? That they're going to be able to do this quicker than, than we thought. And it raises the possibility that the Russia that emerges from the Ukraine war may not be sort of like the chastened, weakened Russia we were hoping for, but this like hyper-revisionist, hyper-mobilized, somewhat empowered Russia that feels like it has taken the best punch that the collective West can throw and managed to eke out a victory in Ukraine. And this poses a much bigger threat to the Eastern Front of NATO than it did before. And I think that's behind a lot of the, the very public anxiety you're hearing from uh, officials in a variety of European countries right now. No, absolutely. And, and if you throw Gaza into the mix, uh, this idea when they were writing a strategy that uh, the Middle East was going to be... <laughs> quiet and balanced and i mean uh, i mean that's jake, jake did this, did the you know the foreign foreign affairs piece and the speech also right before the place blew to pieces saying how great things were going in the middle east so you throw that bit of into it and your strategy is uh you know it's 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 time to do a new one <laughs> well it's it, this is a really good point i mean it's worth pointing out the extent to which the administration's foreign policy concept has been turned upside down since early yeah. 2021. So the, you know, Biden foreign policy 1.0 was park the Iran problem, park the Russia problem and focus on climate and focus on China. Then Ukraine happens, but well, okay, Russia is going to come out of it the defeated and so on and so forth. We may not be able to get new JCPOA with Iran, but we can at least get de-escalation. Both of those assumptions have have come undone in the past year. And so now you have a situation where the administration that came in saying we need to deprioritize other things so we can focus on extreme competition with China is now, you know, praying that the U.S.-China relationship doesn't turn ugly in the next year or two because it is so consumed by crises in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Right. Absolutely right. You talked about the Russia that emerges from this. And in the chapter that I just wrote for you, Hal, um, I kind of referred to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as the point of no return. And this idea that then Russia's reorienting not just domestic policy, including the economy, the way that you discussed it, but it's also reorienting its foreign policy to double down on partnerships with the like-minded um, actors in China, Iran, North Korea. And we, you, you mentioned this a little bit, but there was a, I'm going to get to my question in a second, but you had a, a, a line in your foreign affairs article referring back to the fascist powers Um where you said initially they had little in common except Ill illiberal governance and a desire to shatter the status quo. That sounds much like today. And I wonder just to hear your take on what this 
coalition is, um, you know, the, the phrase that I'm stamping on it is the axis of upheaval, but how, how are you looking at this relationship that Russia is forging with uh, China, Iran, North Korea? How consequential is it? Um, how meaningful is it? I think we in the West sometimes have a hard time making sense of these relationships because they don't look like alliance relationships that the U.S. has, right? And so the U.S. has these alliances that are deeply institutionalized. American presidents have to go to Brussels or wherever every year and, you know, pledge fealty to Article 5. That's how an alliance works in the American perspective. That's not how most alliances historically have, have worked. And it's not how the relationships between the countries that I sometimes call the Eurasian autocracies work. And so these these are looser relationships, but they're still tremendously geopolitically consequential because these partnerships can uh, accelerate the military technological development of one side or another. Certainly, we've seen that in the Russia-China case uh, in recent decades, and that appears to be going into overdrive, even as a lot of that cooperation sort of disappears behind closed doors. Um, it can uh, strengthen existing challenges to the status quo, as we're seeing in the way that North Korea and Iran are providing uh, Russia with the military wherewithal to continue its assault uh, on Ukraine. And it can destabilize the system simply by uh, confronting the, the reigning superpower with more challenges than it can handle at any particular time. And so in some ways, you know, the interesting question is not, you know, are Putin and Xi coordinating their uh, attempts to undermine the status quo? The fact that they have a de facto non-aggression pact with each other allows them to independently push outward against the liberal international order in ways that forces the U.S. to react in different places and, and in, at different times. And, and so these things, um, they make the fact that these partnerships exist, they make the revisionist challenges worse individually and collectively. Uh, which is a kind of what happened in the 1930s with the relationships between, you know, fascist Italy, Germany, and Japan. And the other thing I'll, I'll point out is that in some ways the situation is actually worse for the U.S. today, even though the scale of the revisionism that today's uh, aggressions have undertaken is less than it was in the 30s, because geography is more favorable to the autocracies this time around than it was before. You know, Germany and Japan really were never able to help each other in a meaningful way during World War II, because there were thousands of miles uh, separating them. And, you know, once Germany and the Soviet Union go to war, and once the US and the UK come into war, there, there's no way of getting stuff from one place to the other. Well, uh, Russia, China, North Korea share land borders. Um, Russia and Iran do not, but they're connected by the sort of the Caspian corridor, which critically is off limits to the US Navy. Uh, and so they are able to develop these supply networks, trade networks, financial networks that are more shielded from interdiction either by you know, Western navies or Western sanctions than they would be in other cases. And so it's, it's actually kind of revealing that you see um, artillery or drones being shipped from Iran to Russia via this inland sea where the U.S. Navy can't go or by uh, train. You're getting artillery ammo being provided from North Korea to Russia across the old Trans-Siberian network. And so the fact that these countries are all geographically proximate to each other, or at least to one other member of the coalition actually matters a significant amount. That's fascinating. Now that's that's just that's just really great. Uh, you know, let me throw something else out from the 1930s in terms of, of allied assistance to those under attack. Uh, something that, um, not a lot of people think about uh, in terms of Poland and when the Germans and uh, and uh, Soviets went into Poland was that uh, a couple of months before the Brits and the French had pledged uh, to support Poland uh, when they were attacked. Uh, and um, and and Finland also, I think at some point uh, during the Winter War, there was a pledge of assistance to the Finns as well by the Brits, I think. You would know more than, than I about that, Hal, but I think there was a pledge there. And um, in both instances, that assistance was not forthcoming. I know the Brits wrestled with what to do about the Poles. Uh, I'm not sure how much wrestling they did about the Finns. They did a little bit, but yeah. they were, you know, they didn't have enough to go around themselves, uh, much less uh, send a lot to uh, to Poland. And even with the, when the French were attacked, uh, the Brits had a big debate over how many 
how many uh, British aircraft should they, you know, send into France to help fight against the Germans? So, you know, I, as we look at the situation today, uh, and again, and we're, I think we're all of us recognize you don't want to draw historical connections too closely because they rhyme, they don't repeat. <laughs> uh, but still, you're looking at wrestling with providing assistance to Ukraine and a lot of commitments from the United States. Others uh, going to Ukraine that's not coming about, um, you know, uh, uh, commitments to the alliance, to, 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 to NATO. Uh, that's now suddenly uh, the Republican, con- uh, presumed Republican contender is, is already thrown that into question, whether we would be supporting, uh, supporting our allies, backing up commitments that we had made, like the Brits and the French to Poland. How much of this this commitment to one another uh, in terms of providing assistance and either being there for them or not, how much are we seeing a bit of a rhyming between the 1930s and today? Or is it really different? Today, you've got an alliance, you've got Article 5, you've got the blood pact between all of us. Really? Is that really uh, true, uh, including with Ukraine? Or, or really, are we running into a very similar thing in the 1930s where we talk a lot and we're well-meaning, uh, but we have misjudged what it is we've got to help deal with, and we just don't have uh, the all the uh, the arsenal, if you will, to provide that assistance. And we're starting to get political fatigue, and suddenly, it's, you know, there's some. I'm sure uh, Kiev and Warsaw have a lot to talk about their historic experience uh, being promised things that never showed up, either politically or because we just didn't have it. So, so tell me, is there some rhyming going on, or 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 not? There, there's certainly a little bit of rhyming when it comes to the danger of pursuing strategies that are um, penny-wise and pound-foolish. Uh, right. So, you know, yeah, the U.S. could save um, some money, or more accurately, it could it could avoid drawing down certain military stockpiles in the short term by cutting Ukraine off from aid, either sort of deliberately or in the, the backward way we're about to do it right now. The, the question, of course, is would the hat raise or lower the long-term cost to U.S. national security and almost certainly raise them, right? Because if Russia succeeds in imposing an unfavorable cost, an unfavorable peace on Ukraine, you're going to have heightened levels of instability and insecurity affecting uh, pretty much all of of Eastern Europe, which is, unless the United States simply withdraws from NATO, which perhaps is a possibility, is going to require bigger U.S. investments to deal with down, down the line. And so certainly there's a parallel there. I mean, I think the, the thing that's worth pointing out, uh, people don't really understand how loose Article 5 is. So, yeah. so I, I was actually teaching a class this morning and I asked my students, I was like, somebody pull up the North Atlantic Treaty and read Article 5 to us and tell us what Article 5 sort of contractually uh, requires the U.S. to do when Poland is invaded. And the answer, of course, is absolutely nothing, right? It says countries will act based on their own assessment of the situation, uh, essentially. And so what this indicates is that U.S. alliance guarantees are, are entirely as good as people think they are, right? And, and people think that NATO is the gold standard U.S. alliance commitment. And that is what has the effect of reassuring allies and deterring enemies. But because the commitment is actually so loose, it wouldn't take a formal U.S. withdrawal from NATO to fatally undermine the alliance. All, all a president would have to do is consistently talk down the value of Article 5 and say, yeah, you know what, we probably wouldn't do anything if Montenegro or uh, Estonia or Poland uh, was, was attacked. And of course, there's a reason that I, I mention this, because we're having this discussion a few days after uh, former President Trump suggested exactly this and even went a little bit further and suggested that he might encourage Putin to attack uh, NATO countries if they had not uh, paid their bills. And I'm using air yeah. quotes here because that's not yeah. how actually NATO budgeting actually actually works. And and right. so I, I think that that is the point that's often forgotten about NATO, about what a powerful but also a potentially fragile tool Article 5 is. And that's why American presidents always feel it necessary at the first NATO summit they go to, to say that the Article 5 commitment is sacrosanct. And that's why it's so dangerous to be talking down the alliance in the way that, that Trump did during his presidency and appears to be doing right now. Absolutely. Uh, NATO is all about deterrence. And if deterrence is incredible, uh, then you you don't have, uh, you know, the credibility 
is gone, you don't have the deterrence. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's that simple in a lot of ways. You've got to be credible. And when you start casting doubts on your commitment to that deterrent, then, then it's going to melt away like a sandcastle on a beach. It's a perfect transition. The perfect transition, though, to the simultaneity and opportunistic aggression, because we're all talking about the political commitments, political signaling, um, upholding the perceived legitimacy of Article 5. But there are other scenarios that could similarly erode deterrence and or convince the Kremlin that the United States wouldn't have the interest and or the capabilities to defend NATO. And that would be a crisis over Taiwan or something in the Indo-Pacific. So Hal, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, I think that's something that European allies and partners also need to understand. So even if we get through this bumpy road here with President Trump and all of his efforts to to delegitimize NATO, even if we ride this out and he doesn't pull the United States out of NATO and we remain politically committed to the alliance, there's still another scenario out there in which President Putin could decide that now is the time to test NATO. So talk to us a little bit how you think about the simultaneity and, and, and to what extent does that need to be factored in for European allies and in the United States' own defense and, and planning and budgeting? So about six years ago, the U.S. formalized a shift that had been underway for a few years, which basically meant we were going from, and I'm simplifying here, a two-war military for most of the post-Cold War era to a one-war military. And that was mostly predicated on the idea that if the U.S. had to fight China, it would be so much harder than anything the U.S. had done since Korea or maybe since World War II that it just wasn't credible to say you were going to be doing that and doing a bunch of other things at the same time. This fight was going to chew up the vast majority of globally available U.S. combat power. It was going to chew up, you know, 1.5x of the globally available lift and logistics and, and so on and so forth. It was going to strain the U.S. military in ways that that no one you know had experienced in quite a while. And so the thinking, as I understand it at least, was that if you really wanted to get the Pentagon to focus on the China scenario, you had to get it to stop focusing on other things. And one of the ways you did that, providing the bureaucratic spur, was shifting to this one war strategy. So you're not allowed to say, no, no, we prefer to focus on the Iran fight because that's the one we're really confident we can win or whatever the, the case may be. And so that that made sense. But the challenge is that the United States doesn't face one theater worth of trouble. It faces three theaters worth of trouble or, or more, uh, depending on you know what crisis uh, may emerge at any given time. And so, you know, sometimes this argument, the argument of what to do uh, breaks down between two schools of thought. And so, you know, school of thought one is like, well, the U.S. is going to need more than a one war military if it wants to remain a globally credible superpower in a world where there are multiple theaters worth of challenges. And then the answer to that sometimes is no, no. What needs to happen is that the Europeans in particular just need to take fundamentally more responsibility for their own defense because the U.S. isn't going to be there in the same way they expect if this happens amid a crisis over Taiwan. And my answer is kind of like, yes, right? The the U.S. is going to need more military power to remain a globally credible superpower in this world, and it's going to need a lot more out of its allies in every region of the world. And so there there are some encouraging things that are happening here. Uh, in the Indo-Pacific, what Japan is doing is is great. Um, in Eastern Europe, what Poland is doing is great. But the challenge is that what the Ukraine war has revealed is that the runway to get to a serious military capability is, is pretty long for a number of European countries right now because they have so underinvested in defense capability and their defense industrial bases since the end of the, the Cold War. And so where this is manifesting right now is that if the U.S. drops out of the Ukraine coalition tomorrow, the Europeans can come up with the money, but they can't come up with the stuff, right? They can't come up with the ammunition. They can't come up with the material that Ukraine will need to defend itself uh, this year and, and next year. And there would be a similar challenge that would emerge if the Europeans were to need to take the lead in, say, a NATO, a NATO-Russia contingency. And so I, I think this is one of these areas where just sort of everybody is going to have to do more if we're going to uphold this liberal international order that most of the advanced democracies seem to really value, and we're going to be able to do it in more than one place at one time. 
Yeah, I think it's such an important message. I mean, something we talk quite a lot about is having, you know, as especially as European allies are increasing defense spending, being very cognizant of those capabilities and things that the U.S. would need in the Indo-Pacific so that they can direct those expenditures to to that types of, to those those things so that they can maintain deterrence. Um, Jim, what else you what else you got? Well, um, you know, Hal, I, I really admire your your writings and your way of thinking. Uh, and so uh, I usually ask this question to these uh, diplomats and leaders who are long in the tooth and are exiting the scene. I ask them to look back on their career and tell us what they, you know, I try to do those kinds of things. Not often because Andrea laughs at me a lot of times and I and I just don't do it. But I like to ask you, not that you're long in the tooth and looking back on a long career, although it's pretty long, but but given your feel, your your geopolitical feel and your sense of history, which I I I like both ways. When you look out five years, uh what what do you feel? You know, what are you feeling? What do you see? How do you think things are going to turn? Uh, I know that's a dangerous question given the turmoil that we're in now, but what's your what's your gut telling you as you look out there? And we're not going to hold you to it. We'll burn this this Brussels sprout segment after we've released it, uh, and they'll, we'll we'll get rid of it from the archive. But uh, what's your feel? I'll I'll resist the urge to quarrel with the premise of the question because I I still consider myself a young man even if if nobody else does. But the I, so I you know I think that. Um, if you look out over a 10 to 20 year period, I'm I'm pretty confident about where the US and its allies will come out. Because if you if you look at kind of what fundamental questions of national power and national trajectory in the modern age, as profound as America's internal problems are, I would rather have those problems every day of the week than have Russia's problems or China's problems or you know Iran's problems. And so when, you know, I, I'm quite confident the U.S. is still going to be the most powerful country in the world two decades from now, uh, as long as the U.S. doesn't sabotage its own democracy or sabotage its alliance uh, networks. The U.S.-led coalition is still going to be the dominant coalition in global affairs. It's just going to be really hard for the Russias and Chinas of the world to overtake the U.S. in some holistic sense. I worry a lot more about the next five to 10 years because the area, you know, all of this great latent underlying power that the U.S. and other democratic societies have um, will not save them if they find themselves in a very violent, very dangerous world where they're confronting multiple challenges at the same time. And so I I worry a lot about the late 2020s uh, in the Indo-Pacific, which is when I think the military balance will look as favorable to China as as it ever will. Um, I worry a lot about the situation that could emerge two, three years from now if Russia is able to squeeze out a victory in Ukraine and finds itself up armed and mobilized at a time when many NATO countries uh, are not. And of course, we've talked about the the risks of you know um, conflict and further escalation in, in the Middle East. And so my my view, I think, is that we're going to have to go through a very very rough period over the next three to five years, where I fear that many of the problems are going to get worse before they get better. But we shouldn't lose confidence and we shouldn't despair in terms of trying to do that, because I think if we if we can get through that, I'm more optimistic about the trajectory of the democratic world. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. The, well done. Yeah. One question I have, you know, we haven't touched on this and I know we're just about at time. But so I fundamentally agree with what you just said. And um, because and you know, that the idea that the United States is going to remain the preeminent power, we've seen this really um, amazing mobilization of the NATO alliance and the United States and its democratic allies in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe. But the, at the same time, there is, in my view, a coalescing of this other axis. And so both of those things can be true at the same time. And I worry very much that we're moving then towards a world, as you're talking about how, where you have an uptick in, in conflict. And so both both uh, alliances can remain strong, but you get a lot of uptick in the, in the conflict that takes place between these competing orders. But my question, because we haven't touched on it, is about you know, the so-called swing states or the countries in the global South. 
are we moving, like, would you characterize what we're moving towards as increasingly blocks, which I, I, I probably wouldn't, but how do you think about the role of all of these countries in the middle and how that's going to shape, shape future dynamics? It's not a very articulate <laughs> question, but I think you get what I mean. Yeah, no, and it's, and it's a critical issue because on so many particular subjects, the balance of advantage between one side and the other will be determined by what these countries and the great hedging middle do, right? And so it's it's not quite right to call these countries non-aligned because some of them are kind of multi-aligned or ambivalently aligned or, or things like that. But if you're thinking about um, Russia sanctions enforcement, right, the choices that the Emiratis and the Saudis and the Turks make have a really powerful and in some cases a fairly pernicious impact on the ability of Western uh, sanctions to do their work on, on Russia's economy. If you think about the balance of power in Asia, the choices that India makes are going to be just absolutely fundamental to, to how the U.S.-China competition plays out. And you, can, and you can go on down the list. I guess I would say that um, you know, dealings with these countries are going to be inherently frustrating because most of these countries are going to avoid choosing a side in the way that the U.S. might like them to. So India is just never going to be as helpful to the U.S. on Russia as we would like for reasons that have to do with, you know, the, the preferred Indian concept of international order, as well as issues relating to military supply chains and, and things like that. And so the U.S. is going to find itself and have to live with a situation where it can get pretty good Indian cooperation on China, probably, but it's just going to be dealing with a much more ragged relationship on, on other issues. You know, these countries are going to try to play both sides uh, against the middle. This is what MBS has done expertly over the past year and a half, where, you know, he went from having a near break in his relationship with the U.S. in late 2022 to being on the verge of getting an Article 5-like security guarantee from the U.S., mainly because he got in deep enough with the Chinese to make the threat to defect to the other side credible. And so now the U.S. has been scrambling over the past year to try to avoid that. And so I think really the key is going to be to go on an issue by issue basis, figure out, you know, what are the issues where the U.S. most needs alignment from these countries, de-emphasize or accept some degree of ambivalence on other issues, and then try to find ways of changing the underlying incentives over time. And, th and that's going to be inherently unsatisfying and messy, but I think that's the best we're going to do. Yeah, it is. It's just so much messier. I mean, and I think that that another important dynamic to, to this axis of upheaval is like, not only is it amplifying America's adversaries in the way that you describe with Russia giving away more sophisticated military technology, but it's also diluting the foreign policy tools that we have to confront them. So harder to sanction information environment, all of the above. So, um, well, I mean, we always promise never to end on an optimistic note. So I think we've delivered safely. Um, Check but, that box. Yeah. Um, Hal, thanks for doing this. Um, we really appreciate it. We've wanted to have you on the podcast for such a long time. So I'm glad we finally made it happen. Yeah. Th thank you. thank you for having me. It's been just a wonderful discussion. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.